The last move is to transcend cynicism and to say that even though I know that there are just as many snakes in your heart as there are in my heart, I'm going to hold out my hand in trust because that's the best way to elevate both of us. And that is the prerequisite for a sensible yeah. discussion. Yeah. Here, Jordan Peterson is directly talking about Sam Harris. He points to him. Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris, and Douglas Murray. The Dublin debate. Mr. Reagan. I loved this debate. And I hated this debate. Let me start with what I loved. In the beginning of the debate, hope sprang eternal. And in the end, there is an unexpected twist. And I love that. I love starting out with an exciting opening, all hope and eagerness welling up within you. And I love ending with an unexpected twist. I love the dynamism. So this particular day's debate, the Dublin debate, plays out a lot like a well-crafted feature film with three acts. It was the second act that really pissed me off. Finding themselves at an impasse, they ended up stopping the debate about religion in order to engage in a series of less difficult topics, topics upon which all three men, Peterson, Harris, and Murray, all agree. They do return to the original debate in the end, and that's part of the twist, and it's great, but that middle bit did really annoy me. Now, I'm not going to get into specifics just yet, but I will say that the entire thing could have been a lot more productive. And the reason that it was not productive was because, you guessed it, Sam Harris. I don't believe Sam Harris should be called upon by any other intellectual to ever debate about religion ever again. He does not engage. Sam Harris just does one thing over and over and over and over again. He says, no. Jordan Peterson will propose an idea and Sam Harris will say, no. Sometimes Sam Harris will actually contradict the thing that Jordan Peterson said. He'll come up with some quickly manifested idea about why he doesn't like it, and he'll express it in the most intellectually impressive way that he can muster. But even when he doesn't have a contradiction, Sam Harris will simply dismiss what Jordan Peterson is saying and then slap out some random superficial criticism of religion. And worse still, he'll present this as if it's a substantive rebuttal. He's very good at public speaking, at presenting ideas. He knows how to express himself so that it sounds like what he's saying is hyper-intellectual, irrefutably true, and seriously profound. Sam Harris could read the ingredients on a chewing gum wrapper and make it sound as though he were unlocking the secrets of the universe. But this is, of course, rhetorical trickery. It's illusory. Not always. Sometimes Sam Harris has a valid substantive point. It's the fact that even when he doesn't, that he tries to pretend that he does, that's what really annoys me. It shows, again, that though he may have the intellect to explore these ideas honestly with Peterson, his intent is merely to win the debate, to prove his preconceptions true. Jordan Peterson is clearly coming to this with the premise, we don't know what the truth is exactly. We may think we know, but we don't really have this all figured out. So let's start at the beginning. Let's begin by exploring fundamental ideas. What is good? What is bad? What are facts? What's the nature of reality? From there, they can explore ideas like, is God real? Would a secular code of ethics be effective? What motivations might we introduce to encourage goodness in all mankind? But Harris is not coming to this with the same premise. He's not assuming we don't know. Sam Harris is coming to this with the idea, I do know what the truth is exactly. I do have this all figured out. We don't have to start at the beginning with fundamental ideas. We can just jump to the end because I can already tell you that religion has no value. Secular ethics would be better and that's it. Sam Harris is fixed on the idea that he's absolutely right on every issue all the time. 
Sam Harris's worldview appears to be this. Religion is stupid, and everybody who doesn't think exactly like me is stupid. And that seems to be it. He, he hasn't actually designed a secular ethic that might work or an ethical system. He, he acknowledges in the previous debate that his concept of the moral landscape is essentially relativistic ethics. Relativistic ethics means whatever people think is right is right. What that boils down to is that there are no actual ethics. People just do what they want. This is not a new idea. It's, it's typical atheistic relative morality. It's just packaged in an intellectual way by Sam Harris. There doesn't seem to be anything about Sam Harris's ideas that can actually benefit the world in any new way that I can see. If Sam Harris had simply allowed himself to go down some of the roads that Jordan Peterson had invited him along, we may have seen a productive debate. So what Jordan, I think, disagrees with me about, we clearly have a common project. We are both concerned to understand how to live lives worth living. How can we do this individually? And how can we build societies that safeguard this project for millions of people attempting to do this in, in their diverse ways? What is the relationship between facts and values? for instance, or science and spiritual experience or our ethical lives. We have, for the moment, differing answers to those questions. Jordan is concerned that I, in my allergy to religion, insufficiently value the power of stories in general and religious stories in particular. There's something more than just nakedly engaging with facts as they are. We, 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 don't, we don't simply come into contact with reality. We have to interpret reality. We interpret it through our senses and, and with our brains, obviously. But you need frameworks and, as Jordan would say, stories with which to do that. You don't get facts in the raw. Jordan believes that because my purpose so often is to counter what I view as the dangerous dogmas within religion, I ignore the, the power and even the necessity of certain kinds of stories and certain ways of, of thinking about the world and, and our situation in the world that not only bring many, many millions and even billions of people immense value, are in fact necessary for anyone, however rational, to build a society where all of our well-being can, can be conserved. So I think if, if in brief, that's, that's Jordan's concern about me. So Sam is concerned, um, I would say, above all, with the minimization of unnecessary suffering, which seems to me to be a pretty good place to start. And he's concerned that, he's concerned that in order to do that, we need to develop an ethic, and that ethic should be grounded in that realization that unnecessary suffering is worth contending with and dealing with, and that and that if we make too much of the divide between facts and values, then we end up in a situation where our value structure has no super subordinate foundational grounding. And, and this is a big problem. So generally, in the philosophical community, it's accepted, although not universally, that it's difficult, if not impossible, to derive values from facts. But the problem with that proposition is that you end up in a situation where either you lose all your values because they're just arbitrary, or you have to ground them in something that, that, that's, that's revelatory. And Sam is concerned that one of the negative consequences of grounding your fundamental ethic in something that's revealed is the emergent consequence of irrational fundamentalism. And so obviously that's worth contending with. And so he's taking issue with the philosophical idea that facts and values have to be separate, 
and formulating the proposition that we can, in fact, ground a universal system of values in the facts and that we can mediate between the facts and the system of values using our facility for truth, but even more specifically, our facility for rationality, and that rationality can be the mediator between the world of facts and the world, and the world of values. The, the, the problem I have with that, I guess, if, we're, if, we're, if we can skip briefly to problems, is that it, it isn't obvious to me how to produce an ethos with sufficient motivating power to, to ground that conception of the minimization of suffering, say, and the promotion of well-being um, in a way that's, that grips people and unites the society. We seem to agree on the necessity for the universal ethos, we, we even seem to agree, I would say, on what that is, because certainly the minimization of suffering seems to me to be a very good place to start. My sense, especially after thinking about our discussion, is that Sam makes what rationality is do too much work. And I'm hoping that, not that rationality is irrelevant or unimportant, because it, it clearly is neither of those, but maybe the devil's in the details, and hopefully we can get down to the details tonight. So these are good Steelman recaps. Uh, Peterson does a good job of transitioning from the Steelman to the debate. He actually says that Sam Harris's primary ethic of the reduction of suffering is a good place to start. I don't think he actually believes that. I, I think he's actually being generous in order to progress the debate. Also, I think it's entirely wrong. Firstly, I've explained this in other videos. Happiness, as we classically define it, will not make us happy. And I know that sounds crazy, but... But what is happiness, as we classically define it? It's the absence of suffering. It's comfort. It's pleasure. It's fun. It's love. It's all those things that we associate positively. And yet, the total absence of suffering would make us miserable. Why? Because there is something within the machine of man that is compelled to do things. We feel a compulsion to push forward. Now, I recognize this in myself as a compulsion to make a significant positive impact on the world. Somebody else might recognize this as a compulsion to do well at their job, or raise children, or improve themselves, or give to charity, or volunteer, or whatever. Whatever the personal compulsion is within you, it demands pressure. It, it demands to feel some push or pull. This is the reason video games are so addictive. It doesn't make sense given that happiness, classically defined, is the absence of suffering and the presence of all good things. A video game is struggle. You're struggling against challenges in the game. So the absence of all suffering can't be the ultimate good. It can't be the primary ethic because struggle is a slight form of suffering. So then we have to define suffering. Sam Harris never does this. He simply defers to an imaginary generic idea, things we don't like. One step down from that, on an even more fundamental level, we have to explore why people assign values to things. Now, it's important to reconcile any deep exploration of fundamental ideas with reality. We, we know what we value in real life today as humans. And this, I think, is the foundation for all Sam Harris's positions. And it's important that any evaluation of the ideas of values, the idea of good and the idea of bad, conform in some way to reality. That is, these ideas must be reconcilable with actual values that human beings hold, either now or historically. Now, Sam Harris has built most of his ideas around the idea that because we know for sure what we value today, we can understand or we can discover what is best for us through an analysis of these values. But there's a deep flaw in this thinking. We often think something is good for us, but it isn't. We've seen this countless times through history. I know we keep going back to Marxism, but just look at Marxism. A lot of people, a lot of people thought this was a good idea. 
wrong. The assumption that brilliant minds can construct a moral code today superior to all moral codes in history is merely hubris. Christianity has worked astonishingly well over the past 2,000 years, and, as far as science is concerned, we have no idea why. I propose that science explore the reasons why this works before scrapping it for something new. It's like Sam Harris lives in this beautiful mansion with a hundred rooms, and with only a basic understanding that walls and a roof keep the elements out, he proposes demolishing the mansion so that he can build a childlike fort made from sticks in its place. In fact, I don't even think he cares about building the fort. He just wants to destroy the mansion. I think Sam Harris has a secret intention with his entire position on religion. His proposition is that we replace religion with secular ethics. But I actually don't think he cares at all about replacing religion. I think secretly Sam Harris merely wants to destroy religion, and that's it. I think he just hates religion so much, and probably Christianity in particular, that he just wants to destroy it. This is why he said at the end of the last debate, no one has a right to their religious sectarianism. To him, this is the ultimate goal, total obliteration of the belief in religion. He has no interest in building society. Any claims he has about that, I think, are all merely invented to support his goal of destruction. I know this all sounds crazy. I mean, I know it's, it's like a crazy accusation, but based on the debates, I think it's true. And if you watch through the rest of my analysis, I think you'll agree. Can I make a quick observation about some of the, the progress that uh, you've already made in Vancouver, some of the progress I hope we can make tonight? I, I see one thing that hampers it, and let me go straight to it with Sam, which is I discovered a terrific phrase the other day that our mutual friend Eric Weinstein came up with. And he said, look, if you've got a scientist who you know is also basically a very literalist Christian, you will listen to their argument a whole long part of the way. And there's somewhere at the end of it, you know you're going to be worried about it. And he came up with this phrase. I, I love this phrase. He says, Jesus smuggling. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus smuggling is, you're going to follow all the way. Yes, yes. And then the worry is that when you get to the bit that you're not so good on, that's when they're going to smuggle in Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my suspicion is that you have a reservation about some of what Jordan is saying on substructures, on stories, yeah. and much more, yeah. because you're worried that at some point, either on this stage or off it, at some point when you're not looking... No, no, yes, or, or when I am looking. He's, yeah. he's going to Jesus yeah. smuggle you. Yeah. yeah. That's a... Well, is that, that fair? Yeah. Well, that is an all-too-apt analogy, because it's, uh, it is what worries me, and to, to, to think that you're consciously doing it is is a different claim. Like you, uh, I don't think there's anything insincere about your argument for the for the importance of religion. What worries me about your enterprise, Jordan, and the way in which you 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 seem to be linking our our rational project and our scientific project with religion is the, the way in which you discuss the power of story, the power of metaphor, and and the, the religious anchoring there. The leverage and the utility can be had even while acknowledging the real mechanics of it. And you seem to suspect that it can't, that that takes all of the, well, the wind I, out I, of the sails. I'm not, I'm, not so sure, I'm not so sure what of it's fake and what of it isn't. Douglas Murray notes that Sam Harris appears to be somewhat reluctant to fully engage in Jordan Peterson's ideas because of a secret fear that Jordan Peterson is surreptitiously attempting to introduce Jesus into the debate. 
or I think more precisely, an argument about the validity of divinity of Christ disguised within a seemingly practical argument for the utility of religion. Sam Harris freely admits that this is true. This is extremely troubling. It looks like Sam Harris has been secretly dismissing every point Jordan Peterson has made throughout the first two nights' debates merely because he suspects an ulterior motive in Peterson's arguments. In my analyses of both debates, I tried futilely to decipher the reasoning behind Sam Harris's refusal to engage in an exploration of the most profound ideas about which the debate centers. I could only guess that Sam Harris was afraid of losing. I actually still think that's true. But we are presented here with further insight into his psychology. We get to see the details around this fear of losing. He's not just afraid to lose the debate, a debate about the utility of religion, but he's afraid to lose an even more significant debate, an ongoing debate that, that he's been having with Christians and perhaps even with himself for many, many years. And that's the debate about the validity of divinity. He's afraid to lose the debate about the supernatural. He's afraid to lose the debate about the existence of God. This hadn't occurred to me because Jordan Peterson didn't appear to be making any arguments that would lead anywhere near a case for the existence of God. It did not occur to me that this is what Jordan Peterson was trying to do. And actually, I still really don't think that. I think Peterson is genuinely trying to explore ideas. I'm not sure he even believes in God. Maybe he does, but we haven't been able to establish that because Harris won't engage. Peterson, so far, is just arguing that religious ideas tend to make sense and fit well with the experiences and realities of humanity that have emerged through human evolution. Harris is afraid that this is all a facade, a smokescreen from which Peterson will ultimately make an argument for the existence of the Christian God or the divinity of Christ or some other thing that Harris won't like. This is what they mean by smuggling in Jesus. But, but I'm not so sure this is happening at all, and even if it is, it is absolutely cowardly of Harris not to engage. I, I actually think that there's a third reason for Sam Harris's reluctance to participate in these debates in a deeper way. Yes, I think he wants to appear to win. Yes, I think he's afraid of losing the grander argument about divinity and the existence of God. But also, I think that he's concerned that even if Jordan Peterson merely succeeds in showing that there is some utility in religion, it might drive many people away from atheism and closer to an acceptance of religion. It might, it might just be inching toward religion. But even that, to Sam Harris, is tragic. I think that you recapitulate the essential Christian message precisely by doing that, because symbolically speaking, at least as far as I can understand, stripped of its religious, con of its metaphysical context, let's say. The, the purpose of positing the vision of the ideal human being, which is certainly what the symbol of Christ represents, is the mode of being that moves us most effectively from something approximating hell to something approximating heaven. And then part of that, part of that message is, and this is also something that's dead along the lines of what you're arguing, is that the best way to embody that is actually to live in truth. I mean, so because I would say that the fundamental Christian ethic is to act in love, which is to assume that being is acceptable and can be perfected, and to pursue that with truth, and that you should embody that. And then I would say that the purpose of the representation, we could call them metafictions or, or archetypal representations, is to show that in embodied format so that it can be imitated, rather than to transform it into something that's diluted in some sense to to an abstract rationality. Because I don't think the abstract rationality 
in itself has enough flesh on it, so to speak, which is partly why in the Christian ethic there's an emphasis that the word, which is something roughly akin to rationality, has to be made flesh. It has to be enacted. Jordan Peterson is making the claim that I made in my analysis of the second night's debate. That is, every time Sam Harris tries to describe this imagined secular ethic, he has been arguing for Christianity. His imagined secular ethic and Christianity are indistinguishable. Literally, every point Sam Harris makes about the benefit of a secular ethic can be applied to Christianity. What's more, these benefits can be demonstrated to have been effective historically through Christianity. Sam Harris does not recognize that Christianity is what he has logically concluded to be the best possible ethical system for humanity. But is the, is the flesh made of dogmatism and superstition and otherworldliness. Sam Harris's response to this criticism of his advocation of a secular ethic is not to dispute what Jordan Peterson is saying. Sam Harris merely uses a bunch of pejorative, dismissive words to characterize religion. It is the most obtuse, useless, platitudinal response he could possibly have given. He's basically saying, and no, I'm not Kathy Newmaning him. I was accused of this in the last video. It's not Kathy Newmaning if it's an accurate characterization of a person's statement. So here, Sam Harris is basically saying that because religion centers around some conception of the supernatural, the divine, it has no value. He uses words like superstition in order to be disparaging, to cast religion in a bad light. Instead of being neutral and objective and exploring an idea, he is once again attempting to emotionally persuade using disparaging language. Sam Harris just can't seem to crawl out of his little hole of bias that he's buried himself into. So, for instance, I was walking yesterday in this fine city of yours and saw someone on the sidewalk uh, giving tarot readings to people. He had you know, the, a tarot deck spread out, he had a few cards spread out, and he was soliciting people. And it, these cards can seem prescient. I, I could give you all a reading right now, and 95% of you would find what the cards would say to be relevant to your lives. I mean, I could do it with an imaginary deck. I mean, I don't even, I, an invisible imaginary deck. I don't know anything about tarot cards, but I'm going to turn over two cards now. One is the sun, and the other is the, the fallen man. Uh, or I think it was the hanged man as and a tarot the card, right? Man, yeah. Okay, so I've got these two cards. You know, the sun is clearly the, the representation of wisdom, right? And, the, and the, the hanged man is the representation of, of lost opportunity. And I, I can tell you with some degree of certainty that all of you are at a crossroads in your life, right? Where you have good reason to believe that you're not making the most of your opportunities. Now, I could go on like this for an hour and pretend all the while that it has something to do with the cards working in concert with the dynamics of the cosmos such that these cards that I turn over would be the ones that were revealing something about your mind in this moment. And obviously people think in these terms about astrology and sympathetic magic and all the rest. And religion is built upon this kind of superstition. So Sam Harris here describes a hypothetical tarot card reading. This is Sam's first serious criticism of religion in this night's debate. Immediately, he has reverted to superficial criticisms, surface-level absurdities of superstitious practices. What Sam Harris is neglecting to recognize is that even in biblical times, this was considered a scam. During the days of Christ, and I believe even in the Old Testament, Christians and Jews are warned against this kind of superstitious nonsense. And look, sure, sometimes particularly gullible individuals are convinced by this kind of silliness. But in general, the broader Christian and Jewish cultures recognize that fortune tellers and clairvoyants and these sorts of people 
are con artists with no actual ability to access the supernatural. Today, the vast majority of people who visit a fortune teller are doing it as like a, a lark, right? A gag. They don't actually believe in it. This is a disingenuous, surface-level criticism of a superstitious idea that is also condemned by Christianity in the Bible. In fact, fortune-telling is so removed from anyone's actual practice of Christianity that Sam Harris might as well be blathering on about leprechauns or something. It's completely irrelevant. He just wasted the seven or ten minutes or however long it took for him to talk about this. He wasted all of our time to illustrate an idea that superstition is silly. We all agree with that. Please, Sam, try to delve deeper. This is actually the, the, the issue that Kant, what, obsessed about for most of his philosophical life. And what he concluded was that empiricism can't be right and rationality can't be right as philosophical disciplines because you need an intermediary structure that, and that we have an inbuilt intermediary structure. And that structure is what mediates between the thing in itself, the world of facts, let's say, and the outputs, the values. So then I was yeah. thinking, I well... Mean, I, the truth is we don't quite agree on this. For me, it's just facts all the way down. Okay, so, the, so, what, what okay, you're, so you're great, You're great. describing Glad more facts. Glad to hear it, man. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you need a brain, then? Well, a, a brain is yet another uh, part of reality. I mean, what, what, I, what I mean by a fact what is anything that is What does it do the facts are the just case. there? What does the brain do? It has to do something, because otherwise you don't need it. Well, well sure, it, it does a lot, okay. but the... <laughs> the uh, I mean, so the, I mean, your concern. I think this part of the debate is very illustrative of all three debates up until this point. Jordan Peterson seems to have um, some pretty good ideas about religion, values, facts, the way human beings perceive the world, and a variety of other fundamental ideas that need to be explored if one is to claim that religion is a good thing or a bad thing. Sam Harris seems to hesitate yet again to engage with Peterson. With the new information revealed to us by the observations Douglas Murray expressed at the beginning of this debate, it has become apparent to me that Sam Harris here is, yet again, scared of where Jordan Peterson is leading him. It looks like to me that Jordan Peterson has a pretty good point that he's about to make. Sam Harris can see the excitement in Jordan Peterson's eyes. This terrifies him. Honestly, I don't think Jordan Peterson is actually attempting to disintegrate Sam Harris's worldview. I think it just occurs to Jordan Peterson that they might be making some progress toward discovering some underlying truth behind the ideas that they, they both share about the world. But because Sam Harris is terrified of this idea that, that he might look bad, that Jordan Peterson might make a good case that religion has value, that Jordan Peterson might surreptitiously prove the existence of God, Sam Harris hesitates even to speak. He certainly doesn't eagerly engage in the exchange. Come on, Sam, go for it. Dive in. Explore some fundamental truths. Give us, give us the debate we all came here for. In order to perceive and to act, which I believe are both acts of value, to perceive is an act of value because you have to look at something instead of a bunch of other things. So you, have, you elevate the thing that you're perceiving to the position of highest value by perceiving it, by deciding to perceive it. Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris have an interesting disagreement here. Sam Harris seems to think that our perceptions of reality, what we value and ignore, is all based purely on factual assessments. Jordan Peterson asserts that human beings must interpret reality around them and therefore we cannot possibly value anything in reality based purely on factual assessments because there are millions of possible ways to perceive reality. And then in order to act, you have to select the target of action from among an infinite number of possible mechanisms of action. And so what a biological organism does is take the facts and translate them into perception and action. 
And the only organisms that do that with one-to-one -one mapping are organisms that are composed of sensory motor cells, like sponges, marine sponges, which are composed of sensory motor cells. They don't have an intermediary nervous system. They're so simple that if you grind a sponge through a sieve in, in, in salt water, it'll reorganize itself into the sponge. So that's quite cool. And the sponge sits in the water, and what it does is it, there's waves on it, and so it, those are patterns. And then the sponge opens and closes pores on its surface in response to those patterns. So it maps the pattern of the waves right onto its behavior with no intermediary of a nervous system. But it's, it can only map waves, that's all it can do, and it can only open and close pores, that's it. So it does one-to-one -one fact to value mapping. Now what happens is that as the complexity of a biological organism increases, two things happen. The first thing that happens is that the sensory and motor cells differentiate. So now the organism has sensory cells and motor cells, so cells to detect and cells to act. Okay, so then it can detect more patterns because it's more sophisticated at the sensory perspective, and it can do more things because it has specialized motor systems. But then what happens is that as it gets even more complex, then it puts an intermediary structure of nervous tissue in there, and that structure increases in the number of layers of neurons. And what that means is that as that happens, and as the sensory cells become more specialized, and as the motor output cells become more specialized, many more patterns can be detected those are roughly equivalent to facts. And many more motor outputs can be manifested, but a tremendous number of calculations has to occur in that intermediary nervous tissue. And that's the structure that I'm talking about. That structure exists and it translates the patterns into motor output. And it doesn't do it on a one-to-one -one basis because there are more patterns, more facts, than there are motor outputs. So what has to happen is this tremendous plethora of facts that surrounds us has to be filtered to the point where you pick a single action because you can't act otherwise. And so the mechanism that reduces the number of facts to the selected action is the mechanism that mediates between facts and values. And it's not simply in and of itself, it's a fact that that exists, but it isn't a simple, that what it does isn't a simple fact. You can't, you can't explain it. I, I love what Jordan Peterson is saying here. This is a fascinating example of how humans don't act. Basically, the actions of a sea sponge are directly influenced by the movement of waves. There is an input and an output. That's it. But human beings have a gazillion inputs and a gazillion outputs. We have to discriminate about our inputs and we have to actively decide upon our responses. Sponges merely accept the values they perceive and their outputs directly correlate to this input. A human must make value assessments. In order to discriminate in any sensible way, we must evaluate an enormous amount of data. Then we must choose the appropriate responses among an enormous number of options. Harris would assume that this is all calculable. The system that dictates human actions is just a really complicated input-output mechanism. To him, this is fact-based values. But even if he's right, this system is not comprehensible to humans. His guess is that one day, with advanced enough technology, these kinds of complex systems could be decoded. But until that day comes, it's not helpful to consider values fact-based. It's much more helpful to explore values on a perceptual level. This leads to questions about why thinking feels good, why spirituality feels good, why music feels good, beauty, love, why we're drawn towards struggle. Exploring these profound questions will lead us inevitably to another question, which is, I think, where Jordan Peterson is going, and, and maybe why Sam Harris was, was resisting, is there any real value in reality? And this is the real question. I mean, this is the actual important question that needs to be asked. This is the question Jordan Peterson keeps trying to get to, 
and Sam Harris keeps trying to stop him from getting to. And I think you'll see why in a second. We all want to believe that things have real value, not just perceived value, but real value. If you go all the way down to the core value of all things, there is either value or there is not. One possibility is that human existence is a bizarre accident, an incomprehensibly unlikely coalescence of particles that is of no value whatsoever in the infinity of space-time. And if that's true, then every value Sam Harris is trying to base his system of ethics on is, in fact, an empty illusion. Our values are just whatever we want, and relativistic ethics is actually fine. In fact, murder is fine. There's no real human value, so the manipulation of one form of matter, an alive person, into another form of matter, a dead person, has zero effect on space-time. It is merely a material change in the state of matter. The other possibility is that there is a real core value to all things. Now, this may be something that cannot be perceived by human senses or scientific instruments, but this value may still exist. Clearly, human beings have perceived a core value in things and ideas and themselves since the dawn of time. Unable to explain this core value, we simply accept the idea of the supernatural, and we accept the most sensible version of that supernatural idea. In the case of most modern humans, that idea is religion, divinity, God. If he really wants to, Sam Harris can believe all values emerge from facts. But if this is true, then nothing has any real value. Since he makes clear a little later in the debate that he does not believe in the benefit of accepting a fiction, but rather believes that accepting reality precisely is the best possible perspective to take, then he must accept that his worldview facilitates zero value for anything. Zero value for material things, ideas, experiences, morality, happiness, or human life. With the acceptance of the idea of God, comes the idea of value. God is the ultimate valuable thing. All things come from God, and so all value comes for the value God has. A lot of people will have a problem with this idea. They'll say, but there is no God. Look, it doesn't matter what you call the concept of core value in space-time, but however you conceptualize it, you must recognize that a core value exists in order to believe that anything else has value. Humanity has historically conceptualized this core value as God. Only with God, a central core value, can we believe that anything else in the universe has value at all. Let me, let me express it a different way. Yeah. We haven't tried the purely rational approach yet, or we haven't well, tried well, it for very long. Well, many, and, many of us have been trying for a couple of centuries at least. Which is a blip. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the, the tiniest dot at the yeah. end of human evolution. So I think that a concern which Jordan has, and certainly a concern I have, is if we try this we can think of all sorts of ways in which it can go wrong. We can think of any number of ways in which it can go wrong. That I suppose that that's at the root of the, the concern about where you might be taking us. Or to put it another way, if we enter the world that you would suggest, not everyone may necessarily come out as Sam Harris. Basically, Douglas Murray is saying here that strict atheism is an experiment. And it's an experiment that hasn't been going on for very long and for which we have a lot of concerns. For most of human history, as far as we can tell, human beings have employed the tools of religion that Jordan Peterson is advocating we accept. Sam Harris is advocating for a complete and utter rejection of the framework by which humans have always perceived reality. Sam Harris is advocating a new kind of framework. He's advocating a framework built around facts alone, tearing down the mansion to build the shed. 
Douglas Murray is trying to explain to him that not everyone using such a framework will end up being a productive, good person. Furthermore, we don't even know what the world would be like if everybody lived under Sam Harris's prescriptions. But it's fairly easy to imagine. Eugenics. To me, eugenics is the obvious direction Sam Harris's path will take the world. As I explained a moment ago, without God, there is no real value to anything. People will recognize this. People have. I listed a number of serial killers in the previous video, men who had accepted atheism and recognized this lack of value. Jordan Peterson and Douglas Murray should ask Sam Harris if that's really where he intends humanity to go. This is what, uh, in the dialogue on religion, this is what Schopenhauer says. He says, he describes the tragedy of the clergy. He pretty much says, look, if they don't believe it, they recognize it's a very useful metaphor, but they don't need to believe it. They tell it, and he says the tragedy of the clergy is they can never admit that what they're saying is just a metaphor. There is a way in which religion is what he describes as philosophy for the masses. Mm. And that if you recognize that most people are not going to spend their lives studying philosophy, they're not going to be reading about the differences between Leibniz and Kant, that religion has to do. Now, I'm not saying that I agree with that particularly, but there's a heck of an argument within there. I, I don't think it's a good argument if you recall or just, just imagine what it's like to be a child, especially from the perspective of being a parent. I mean, I, mean, you know, I have two young girls, and one of them is four and a half years old and knows almost nothing. I mean, at what point is she going to, to think for herself about these fundamental questions? So this is the moment I mentioned earlier where Sam Harris argues against the futility of believing in fictions. I actually agree with Sam Harris here. I don't think it's helpful to believe in fantasies, even if you are incapable of fully understanding the world around you. I think we should make every effort to exist within reality as it actually is. I think this whole argument that Jordan Peterson's making, that Douglas Murray is making, that there is some value in accepting and living within a fiction, it's bad. I, I, I think it's actually wrong to believe that society will benefit in the long term by believing in fictions. What Jordan Peterson has right that Sam Harris is dismissing with zero consideration is that the best possible way to live as a human being is by following the ethics of Christianity following the ethics of a religion. Now, in order to understand why Christianity works, one must explore the nature of God. One must explore the nature of divinity. Now, this was done for 2,000 years. Philosophers, academics, theologians of every stripe concerned themselves with questions of the nature of God, of the nature of divinity. It is from these explorations, these philosophical analyses, that the ideas of the Enlightenment emerged. People are still today exploring the ideas of divinity, of God. People like Jordan Peterson help us to understand the mechanics of living by faith, why acting in a religious way seems to work well with the nature of man. And a debate might be had as to whether the phenomenon of religious thinking evolved out of a system of discovery of the best possible ways to act in a society, or whether the ideas behind religion, the ideas of God and divinity, are true. And we should have that debate, but this is not that debate. Because Sam Harris refuses to engage in simple, fundamental questions. This is the real substantive debate we could be getting. See, when you start with the hypothesis of facts, then you kind of have to define what a fact is. And so I think the simplest way of doing that to begin with is that there's a set of objective facts, and that's the facts about objective reality. And we're going to, we're going to agree that that exists, although it's very complicated and difficult to understand. That exists as one set of constraints on what we can do and what we can't do. That's the objective world. And then on top of that, you have this layered system of meaning 
which is partly a manifestation of these layers of the nervous system that I described, but also partly a manifestation of those layers of the nervous system operating in social space over vast periods of time. So that would be the sociological agreement. That's all layered on top of the objective world, and it actually constitutes part of the, the lens through which you view the world to the degree where you actually see the layering in the thing. So like when you go to a museum and you look at Elvis Presley's guitar, you don't look at the guitar and think that's Elvis Presley's guitar. That's not how your brain works. You actually see Elvis Presley's guitar. It's an act of perception, so it becomes built right into your nervous system. Even though the fact that that is Elvis Presley's guitar and the reason that that's valuable is because of a sociological agreement about what position Elvis Presley occupied in the dominance hierarchy that we're all part of. And so what you see when you look at an artifact like that is you see a layer of dominance hierarchy overlaid on top of an objective reality. And that's actually your phenomenal reality. Now the thing that's so interesting is that that layer of perception that's mediating between the facts and you has a structure. And that's the structure that I've been insisting is a narrative. And I think Sam thinks it's a narrative too, because his fundamental ethic is that you should act in a way, which means to embody a mode of being, which means to be a personality that moves us from hell to something approximating oh, heaven. Okay, but that's what, not what a I'm, fact. Jordan, what I'm struggling to understand. I think Jordan Peterson is finally allowing himself to dispense with his heretofore indulgence of Harris's inhibition of conversational progression. Jordan Peterson seems to be insisting, we are going down this path, and he's just dragging Sam, kicking and screaming down the path with him. So the first thing that people assume about me is that I'm no fan of the radical left, and that's absolutely true. I am no fan of the radical left. There's a variety of reasons, but it's primarily because I believe that the radical left errs in insisting at every possible opportunity that the proper defining characteristic of each individual is their group membership. You, you do have a group membership. In fact, you have a whole plethora of them, which makes things quite complicated, as the intersectionalists have already figured out. But whenever... My, someone brings a primary orientation to the world that is group-centered rather than individual-centered, I think they've already made a catastrophic mistake. And so I don't approve of the collectivists. Now, I don't approve of left-wing collectivists, and I don't approve of right-wing collectivists, but the right-wing collectivists haven't overrun the universities, and the left-wing collectivists have. So that's a distinct difference. Now, the, the left-wing collectivists enjoy acquiring a certain linguistic hegemony because they know that that's part of the way they can win the battle and that's what they were trying to do when they passed compelled speech legislation in Canada as far as I was concerned. So I made a video saying I'm not going to abide by that because I'm not using the reprehensible linguistic maneuvers of collectivists who I detest. Now, when I did that, you see, it was a very strange thing for a Canadian to do because Canadians don't do that, partly because Canada works just fine. And so nobody comes up and says, waves the flag saying, look, we're wandering off a dangerous cliff here. And so then if someone does stand up and say that, then the first thing that all the other Canadians think and should think is that there's something wrong with that person. And that would be me. So then the question would be, well, what variety of things could be wrong with Dr. Peterson. That's a very long list, but the ones that might that, come... That's actually a better subtitle than that. 
yeah, terrific yeah. title. Yeah. So, so, so what happened was I objected to the radical left, but the people who objected to me or who were even critical of me or curious about me thought, okay, well, if Peterson isn't part of the left, then where the hell is he? And the answer could be, well, anywhere on the political spectrum, including Nazi. And of course, that's hypothetically true. And if I was a Nazi, then that would be really useful for all the radical leftists, because if you're a Nazi, as Douglas has already pointed out, we've already decided that you're a bad person. And if I was a bad person, then no one would have to listen to me. And so it was in the interests of the radicals whose positions I was disputing to cast me as a Nazi. But it was also a reasonable cognitive maneuver because there was some possibility, although it's infinitesimal given the tiny proportion of actual Nazis in our society, that I would in fact be one and have gotten away with hiding that at two major universities for 25 years. And also, also, at that point, I had 250 hours of my lectures on YouTube, which was basically every word, in essence, that I ever uttered to a student since 1993, and a huge part of that actually consisted of very trenchant criticisms of Nazis. So, but to give my critics credit, they had their reason for vilifying me. And the reason was, if you object, you might be a villain. Okay, so, so that's... That's steel man number one. At this point in the debate, everyone has simply dropped the central subject. They've stopped talking about religion entirely. It is unbelievably disappointing. Everyone seems to be satisfied that they each have their own perspective, and there doesn't appear to be any need to continue the discussion. I feel like I've watched almost six hours of discussion about religion and learned absolutely nothing. Now, I'm not saying that there has been no value in having watched the debates. Listening to Jordan Peterson's perspective and Sam Harris's superficial attacks and disingenuous mischaracterizations has inspired me to manifest new ideas of my own about religion, which I think are valuable. So I'm very happy that I watched the debates, but I do feel like if we'd been able to follow Jordan Peterson's ideas to their core and debated some of the fundamental questions, we might have drawn out some new truths that few people have ever heard before. And I think we've just got to, among other things, work in all sorts of ways, to find ways to think about this that are deeper than the ones we've managed so far. One of them, yes, is to cope with the idea of the unbelievable luck that we've all got. Unbelievable luck. And then the questions from that. If I'm lucky, what are my, what are my priorities? What are my obligations? What are my obligations? Because yeah, I'm lucky, what are my obligations? And some people say my obligation is to share my home with the rest of the world. In fact, it's not that. It's worse than that. Okay, so the issue is borders exclude. Or maybe you could take that even further, that borders exclude and privilege those within the borders. It's like, yes. Okay, so let's take that seriously. Now, part of the seriousness is poor, innocent children are hurt at borders. That happens all the time. Okay, the question is, are you willing to give up the borders? Now, let's think about what borders are. Your skin is a border, and your prejudice in protection of your skin. For example, you won't just sleep with anyone. You reserve the right to keep that border intact, right, and to be choosy about the manner in which it's broached. You likely have a bedroom. It probably has walls. You have clothing. You have a house. You have a town. You have a state. You have a country. 
And those are all borders. It's borders within borders within borders within borders. And you need those borders because otherwise you will die. So we could not be too hypocritical about the damn borders. It's like we, we don't know how to organize fragile things without putting boundaries around them. And you see that in Genesis, right? As soon as people realize that... I'm sneaking in a little religion here in case you didn't notice. As soon as people realize, they become self-conscious, they wake up and realize their vulnerability, the first thing they do is manufacture a border between them and the world. And we need borders between us and the world. And we pay a bloody price for borders. And I, and I say those words very carefully. We pay a bloody price for borders, and it's often in the price of other people's blood. And so then the question might be, well, how should you conduct yourself ethically in a world where other people are paying in blood for your borders? And the answer that I've been trying to communicate to people is, get your damn house in order. Bear as much responsibility as you can. Act as effectively as you can as an individual in the world. Because then you can justify your privilege. You can justify your luck and your good fortune. And maybe within the confines of your border, you can be more productive and useful than you would be in the absolute absence of borders altogether. This is the best explanation of the value of borders that I have ever heard. Fantastic. There's right. just as much error on the side of too much empathy as there is on the side of too little empathy. And, and that's a hard thing for everyone to learn because empathy feels so good. Like if you feel mercy towards a suffering child, it's like that is kind of an indication that you're an ethical person. But there, that's not the basis for complex and sophisticated right. foreign policy. This is such a brilliant idea. I actually think this is something that a lot of people need to learn. Feeling mercy for a suffering child is not a good basis for sophisticated foreign policy. I mean, such, a, such an elegant thing to say and so spot on. The reason I think this is such an important idea is because I actually think it's a bit counterintuitive. The way Jordan states it, it sounds very obvious, but if you think about it, the idea of sympathy or empathy or wanting to help people actually sounds like it should be universally helpful. But the problem with sympathy and empathy in politics is actually well illustrated by the trolley dilemma. If you have to kill one person to save five, you have to kill that one person. It sounds heartless, but often a dispassionate approach to problem solving is better than sympathy or empathy. And that's the brutal reality faced by politicians. There's a brilliant Kurdish demographer who lives, who's a Swedish citizen now who cited this fact that it costs the same amount to bring one refugee and keep them in Sweden as it does to look after 100 refugees in Jordan, Turkey, or uh, Lebanon. Douglas Murray picks such a salient point here. This is actually another idea that needs to be learned by everyone in the developing world. Everybody needs to recognize the futility of inviting refugees into first world nations as a means of reducing poverty. It really doesn't help. So the obvious thing from that is you say, look, it's madness then to be, for instance, bringing in thousands of refugees to Sweden. You could be looking after hundreds of thousands of people in the region. Why is that still a tainted argument? It's because people aren't sure you're not going to smuggle in racism with that. That's why. You're going to start with NGO figures, and before we know it, it's Auschwitz. That's right, what right, they think. Right, right. But here's the thing. There's the shortcut solution to answering almost every single one of these problems is assume that your interlocutor has good motives. Yeah. Assume that they are being honest in the way that they're looking at it. Yes. Look, this is something that Sam Harris absolutely needs to learn. This is something that leftists 
absolutely need to learn. When you are discussing any topic, if you want to come to some kind of a truth that both you and your opponent can agree upon, or that neither you or your opponent realize beforehand, you have to assume that your opponent has positive motives, that he has good intentions. Even if he doesn't, just imagine that he does. Douglas Murray is here talking about the political debate around the admittance of refugees, but this point epitomizes the entirety of all three days' debates. This is not only an appropriate criticism of those who advocate for introducing multiculturalism into developed nations, but it is an appropriate criticism specifically of Sam Harris. The hilarious thing is, Sam Harris is completely oblivious to this. Maybe he gets it, I don't know. Okay, so imagine that you're naive. And what you are when you're naive is someone who thinks you trust people. First, you're naive and you trust everyone, and then someone cuts you off at the knees, and so that you get traumatized by betrayal, and then you become cynical, and you think, Jesus, I'm a lot smarter now that I'm cynical, and you are, because cynical is actually a move up on naive, but it's not the last move. The last move is to transcend cynicism. This is Sam Harris exactly. This is amazing. It's like Douglas Murray and Jordan Peterson are taking turns describing Sam Harris. I think psychologically, this is Sam Harris's primary problem, actually. Actually, I think this is the problem of almost all evangelical atheists. They believe that cynicism is an equivalent to intellect. Sam Harris has yet to transcend cynicism. Even though I know that there are just as many snakes in your heart as there are in my heart, I'm going to hold out my hand in trust because that's the best way to elevate both of us. And that is the prerequisite for a sensible yeah. discussion. Yeah. Okay, now... This is a conscious, pointed criticism aimed directly at Sam Harris. This is not a veiled criticism. Here, Jordan Peterson is directly talking about Sam Harris. He points to him for crying out loud. He says, I'm going to hold out my hand in trust because that's the best way to elevate both of us. And that is a prerequisite for a sensible discussion. This last sentence gets a little bit lost in the applause, but it is key to understanding the target of Jordan Peterson's admonition. Jordan Peterson is directly criticizing Sam Harris's behavior over the past three days. You and I obviously differ in, on, on a variety of different things, and, but, you know, that doesn't, mean, that doesn't mean that I think that you're a bad person. I don't think that. Actually, what I, what I fervently hope is that some of the things that you think are wrong actually turn out to be right in a way that would be extremely helpful to me and everyone I know if I incorporated them. And so I'm hoping that if, if we can have a genuine dialogue and we can tell each other the truth, which is the crucial issue here, then I can find out what you know that I don't know and that'll make me stronger and it'll fortify everyone around me. Following Peterson's pointed criticism of Sam Harris's behavior, he reaches out a little bit. Sam Harris knows that Jordan Peterson was admonishing him. He probably feels a little bit bad about this. So Jordan Peterson employs a strategy here to relieve Sam Harris of this negative feeling. He says, you and I obviously differ on a number of things, but that doesn't mean that I think you're a bad person. He then goes on to say that he hopes that Sam Harris is wrong about some things that will somehow make Jordan Peterson's life better. I think Jordan Peterson actually messed that up. I think what he meant to say was that he hopes he himself was wrong about a few things and that Sam Harris is right about a few things that might make Jordan Peterson's life better. Okay, so he admonishes Sam Harris for not trusting him, and then he's saying, look, you know, you can trust me. I'm not trying to make you look stupid. I'm not trying to destroy you in front of the world. I'm not trying to disintegrate your worldview. I'm just trying to make your life better, and I'm trying to make my life better, and, and I hope that maybe if I'm wrong about some things, that maybe you can make my life better too. 
Jordan Peterson is, at this point, treating Sam Harris like a stubborn patient. He can tell that Sam Harris is suffering from a number of psychological problems, trust issues, which inhibit his ability to engage in the debate. He's trying to break down those trust issues that Sam Harris has, so that perhaps in the final debate, maybe, just maybe, they might be able to make some progress. The end of this debate was actually pretty exciting. I, I didn't expect Jordan Peterson to go after Sam Harris in this way. This was, this was the big twist that I was talking about in the beginning. It was great to hear Jordan Peterson say this. I mean, you know, I, I'm tempted to say that these three days debates were a complete and utter waste of time. Jordan Peterson started with the premise that religion, particularly Christianity, is the natural way through which human beings function in society based on our adaptive natures, having been influenced by the realities that transcend the lifetime of any individual. Sam Harris started with the premise that religion is stupid, everybody who believes in religion is stupid, and that secular ethics could not only be sufficient to replace Christianity and religion generally, but would in fact be superior. Peterson tried time after time to draw Sam Harris into a debate about the fundamental ideas behind values and ethics and facts, and time after time Sam Harris refused to engage. Jordan Peterson began with questions. Sam Harris began with a conclusion. Because of this, Sam Harris was unwilling to follow Jordan Peterson down any path of in intellectual exploration. Sam Harris believed that he knew the answers to everything, and so there was no need to explore anything. Any questions that Jordan Peterson might propose would be met with superficial ridicule of religion. And so it is tempting to say that these six hours were a complete and total waste of time. But they were not a total waste of time. Every point that Jordan Peterson brought up, and a lot of the criticisms that Sam Harris leveled, even though they were all criticisms I'd heard before, did give me an opportunity to think about the subject of religion. It gave me the opportunity to consider these subjects in great depth. Because, of course, I was intending to make these videos for you guys. In the end, I, I think that these debates have been extremely valuable. They inspired me to better frame my ideas about existence and reality. And what I came out with was, I think, seriously profound. There are two types of value. There is perceived value, and there is real value. If there is no core value in the universe, if there's no God, then all value is merely perceived value. And although we may feel like some value is real, it isn't. It's merely an illusion. However, if we accept that there is a core value, if all value adopts some small measure of that core value, the value of God, then all things have real value. Now, how do we know which is true? I propose two evidences for the validity of real value. First of all, humanity seems to only work properly when real value is presumed. Secondly, humanity would not perceive value at all, I don't think, if value was not real. We would perceive utility, like a computer program, but not value. The random coalescence of particles that materializes a person could not perceive value in the way humans do if real value did not exist in the universe. I think Sam Harris's simple values from facts analysis might appropriately explain the behavior of animals, but humans seem to transcend the basic input-output mechanism. We invent, we create, we analyze, we consider, we debate. We are the only coalescence of particles in the known universe that has the ability to intentionally innovate new realities in space-time. And we do all of this on a foundation of value. If value doesn't exist, then what's the point? So, in inspiring me to think about these things and come up with new thoughts and ideas about the nature of reality, the value of religion, and the validity of Christianity, the concept of the divine and God himself, there was a great deal of value, real value, to be gained from the viewing of these debates. And I hope you guys found this analysis to be somewhat valuable as well.
Well, that's it for me. I'm trying to do these videos full-time now. I definitely don't have the money for it, so not full-time yet, but you can help. If, if you like what I'm doing here, if you like to see reason and rationality distributed through this channel, consider donating a little bit of money to my Patreon account. You'll find the link in the description below. If you live in abject poverty, please don't give me your money. But if you're swimming in dough and you want this channel to grow, think about it. That wasn't supposed to rhyme. Okay, so if you like this video, please remember to hit the like button. If you want to see more videos like this, please subscribe. And if you hate me, you, like Sam Harris, probably have yet to transcend cynicism. Good night. You and I are told increasingly we have to choose between a left or right. Well, I'd like to suggest there is no such thing as a left or right. There's only an up or down. Man's old age dream. The ultimate in individual freedom consistent with law and order or down to the ant heap of totalitarianism.